We woke up to discover that we were living in the long run, and we were suffering for our failure to look after it. Welcome to Kick the Dogma, in our book review of The Great Wave by David Hackett Fisher. I'm your host, John Emmerich. This book represents a 900-year history of inflation, or what the author calls price revolutions. Fisher is a professor of history, not an economist. I'm going to resist the temptation to call out commonalities with today's environment till the very end, the analysis of the fourth wave and the conclusion posited by the author. Echoes should be self-evident to the listener, and I don't want to slow down the flow of the book, the narrative arc. The author defines four waves in the book, which is subtitled, Price Revolutions and the Rhythm of History. Each wave has definable stages within it that seem to repeat, as you'll see. And each stage lasted from a decade to decades, not from months or quarters. I'll move briskly through the first three waves to leave emphasis on the more relatable recent wave. The author believes, and I agree, that we're still in the fourth wave, the wave of the 20th century. The first wave is the medieval price revolution of 1180 to 1350. Geographically, the first wave takes place in what we now know as Europe. In its earliest stage, the new trend was nearly imperceptible. But once underway, it would continue for more than a century. It would end in a catastrophe so complete that scarcely anything of medieval civilization survives. It started with accelerating population growth, causing something we might today call a demand-side shock. A period of prosperity inspires some optimism. Families start having children at a younger age. This demand-side shock impacted food, fuel, housing, and land. Growth in commerce and trade expanded the velocity of money, adding monetary inflation to the mix. There was a rush to mine more gold and silver, eventually diminishing the metal's value. The miners played the role of the medieval central bank printing press. Initially, wages kept up with rising prices, but eventually started to fall behind. This was the second stage, and this dynamic will be repeated in future waves. Rents and interest rose. Returns to landowners kept pace with inflation, even exceeding it in some places. Interest rates rose to 12%, and then eventually 20%, this at a time when real wages were falling. The next stage, the third stage, brought price instability. Inequality from falling real wages among the working poor reared its ugly head. Public deficits surged. Production and productivity fell for land and labor. At the risk of stating the obvious, the growth in population was in the young, with no commensurate change in the working age population. Without warning, changes in the weather imperiled peasant farmers. Heavy rains caused harvest shortfalls. A 10% shortfall alone could cause severe suffering. 20% meant starvation. Impoverished peasants ate cats, rats, droppings, and eventually each other. Crime became widespread. Governments manipulated their coinage. Debasements drove up prices. Recoinages brought them down again. Exchange rates became highly unstable. Bank failures ensued. Incessant wars followed, causing further economic dislocation. The Black Death then swept through an already vulnerable population. Historians estimate Europe lost 25 to 40 percent of its population. Cultural disintegration followed, with massacres of Jews and foreigners across Europe. Medieval civilization succumbed to a Malthusian nightmare, writes the author. Entire villages and towns were abandoned, the doors and shutters of the vacant buildings creaking sadly in the wind. 
Empty churches and deserted castles fell into ruin. Grass grew in the marketplaces, and the country roads that had been thronged with pilgrims were reclaimed by weeds and brush. At the dawn of the 15th century, economic conditions stabilized across Europe. This the author calls the equilibrium of the Renaissance, from 1400 to 1470. The second wave would follow, the price revolution of the 16th century. It would run for 180 years. In 1491, Florence had much to celebrate, writes Francesco Guicciardini. Every day, the people were treated to shows, feasts, and novelties. Provisions abounded in the city, and all the trades prospered. Genius and ability flourished, for all men of arts, letters, and ability were welcomed and honored. At home, the city enjoyed complete order and quiet, and abroad, the highest glory and reputation. But beneath the surface, things were not as they appeared. A deep change was silently stirring in Florence and throughout the Western world. After nearly a quarter century of equilibrium, new trends were beginning to develop in Italy and other parts of Europe. An early sign was the movement of prices. The magnitude was not great, but in retrospect, we recognize the silent beginning of a new change regime, destined to continue for generations. The burning of the vanities in Florence in early 1497 became one of the best-remembered scenes of the Italian Renaissance. Only 12 days later, the starving poor, driven to desperation by rising food prices, rioted at the old Piazza del Grano, the public granary. Famine was followed by epidemic disease. In 1498, the people of Florence blamed their leader, Friar Savonarola, and burned him at the stake. Afterward, Italy became a bloody cockpit for foreign invaders. The price revolution of the 16th century, the second wave, was unleashed. But it was comparatively tame initially, when measured in rate of increase, only 1% a year, low by today's standards, but twice the rate of the medieval price revolution. Theories abound regarding the cause of the price revolution, from monetarist to Malthusian. Two trends emerge in the second wave, that there are multiple compounding impacts and that one of them is an acceleration in population growth, putting pressure on commodities. People began to bring marginal lands into production. It was in the early to middle years of the 16th century that the price revolution entered the second stage and a new dynamic, inflation expectations. The net result was the hoarding of goods, speculation, panic buying, degradation of commodities, and in the end, social imbalances another repeat offender. Just like the first wave, wages initially kept pace with increases in prices, then fell behind. Real wages fell sharply, a trend that continued into the 17th century. The most vulnerable were unskilled workers and those with no capital. The increase in wealth inequality caused a rise in homelessness and the number of beggars on the streets. Rent increased ninefold while wages rose barely twice. Increases in rent cause significant rural unrest. The growing gap between returns to labor and rewards to capital was one of the more important social consequences of inflation in the 16th century, causing inequality to grow in a society that was already unequal. Institutions responded by expanding the money supply, essentially chasing the price increases instead of creating them. This time, the silver and gold came from the Americas, in large enough quantities that the increase in the quantity of money reduced its purchasing power. Writes the author, In every price revolution, one finds evidence of frantic efforts to expand the supply of money after people have discovered that prices are rising in a secular way. 
the price revolution of the 16th century caused the rulers of Spain to redouble their efforts to extract gold and silver from their American dominions. Two tendencies powerfully reinforced each other. Together, they created a dynamic of high importance in the history of that troubled age. The quantity theory of money was born during the second stage of the second wave. Social imbalances and monetary imbalances were followed by fiscal imbalances. With increasing deficits and more aggressive taxes, social conflicts began to grow. The price revolution caused falling real wages and rising returns to land and capital, which caused the growth in inequality, which increased the political power of the rich, which led to regressive taxation, which reduced government revenues, which encouraged currency debasements, which drove prices higher. Maybe not coincidentally, the Protestant Reformation gained momentum at the expense of the Catholic Church at this time, writes Fisher. In Germany, many historians have found evidence that the rapid spread of the Protestant Reformation and also the Peasants' War were closely linked to increasing economic stress caused by population growth and price inflation. In general, it might be said that both the Reformation on the one hand and price revolution on the other were parallel expressions of deep imbalances in European society. After Germany, this dynamic could be found again in Belgium and the Netherlands. The three imbalances then gave way to instability, with prices of grain rising and falling, cycles of monetary debasement and recoinage, international flows and political instabilities. Famine and epidemics returned again. The wave reached its crisis point in the 17th century, with what economists would come to call stagflation. In the century ending 1650, there was only one year of true peace. The armies of Europe reached their largest size in the Roman era. Their upkeep imposed heavy costs at the same time that public revenues were reduced by the combined effects of famine, pestilence, war, and depression. Bloody rebellions ensued, and art captured the moment in historic fashion. Shakespeare wrote of dark visions and a disordered world. Cervantes wrote Don Quixote, a sad and bitter description of a world that dissolved into chaos. And Thomas Hobbes wrote his famous aphorism of the era that the natural condition of man was poor and solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. The second wave ended in a spectacular economic collapse between 1610 and 1622. The equilibrium of the Enlightenment bridged the second and third price waves. Prices stabilized, wages rose, rents and interest fell. The distribution of wealth and income became a little more equal, Population, production, and productivity grew modestly. The universe was believed to be a place of order and symmetry, but it would not remain in man's power to understand and control it for long. People in the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment or diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contravance to raise prices. Adam Smith, 1776. And so begins the third wave, the price revolution of the 18th century. Fisher writes, In the year 1729, Paris was the capital not merely of a country, but of a civilization. It was a city of dramatic contrasts. Some of its narrow and crooked streets had changed little since the 13th century. In other neighborhoods, a great rebuilding was underway. The ancient city walls had been pulled down, and in their place, royal engineers had laid out the first tree-lined boulevards. Paris was the city of light, the seat of the Enlightenment, the heavenly city of the 18th century philosophers. But the city was divided against itself. Extravagant wealth and grotesque poverty lived side by side. 
Beggars died of hunger in the streets while the rich rode past in gilded chairs on the shoulders of other human beings. The suffering poor crowded miserably into a maze of medieval tenements. Many lived like animals on close-built bridges above the River Seine, while the great families of France resided in magnificent mansions only a few streets away. As it had in the prior two waves, the price revolution started slowly, almost silently, in the cities and then the countrysides, and eventually throughout the New World. The most rapid movements were in food and energy, and for the third time, these price increases could be traced back to increasing demand driven by population growth. A lengthy bout of prosperity and stability, combined with an optimistic outlook, caused a decrease in the age of marriage and a spike in the rate of fertility. Commodity supply did not keep up with demand again, though this time manufactured goods did. But it wasn't due to productivity improvements, as productivity was held back by, again, marginal lands being brought into cultivation. This became known as cost-push inflation, and David Ricardo is credited with being among the first to recognize that rising population and falling productivity together served as an important source of price inflation. Second stage of the third wave began in the middle of the 18th century, and this wave would be known for a powerful and sustained trend that profoundly changed the conditions of ordinary life. Paper currency began to appear from Scandinavia to North America, and as prices rose, pressure mounted for monetary expansion. The increased quantity of money in circulation added to inflationary pressures. Once again, monetary factors reinforced the pre-existing momentum of the third wave, but didn't set it in motion. Writes the author, Governments responded to the price revolution with various fiscal expedients that were also inflationary. As public spending tended to exceed income, the gap was filled with borrowing on a heroic scale. As the price revolution continued, the rich and powerful generally did well for themselves. Rents increased sharply during the Seven Years' War and kept on increasing thereafter. In France, farm rents doubled during the middle decades of the 18th century. Land prices increased even more rapidly. The cost of real estate quadrupled in many parts of Europe. While rent and interest kept up with inflation, wages fell behind. Fisher again. The result of this decline in real wages in the 18th century was different from earlier price revolutions. It caused much suffering among the poor, but no epidemic famines as in the 14th century, and no decline of population as in the 17th. Here is a striking paradox in the history of price revolution. As one of these great waves followed another, rates of inflation increased but human suffering diminished. How could this be the case? Three developments in this wave resulted in accelerated rates of inflation, but diminution of its cruelest consequences. They were expansion and integration of world markets, improvement in income per capita, and growth in welfare, which prevented starvation. But imbalances led to instabilities, and instabilities included the growth of inequality. For the rich, it was the best of times. Rules were created to further enhance opportunities for a narrowing band of elites. Between a third and a half of the people of France lived near the margin of subsistence. Class conflict grew. The economies of Western Europe in the 1780s experienced the same combination of inflation and stagnation that marked the penultimate stage of the previous price revolutions. Governments struggled with solvency, higher taxes weighed heaviest on the poor, leading to the revolutionary crisis from 1789 to 1820. In a repeat of prior crises, foul weather complicated matters, specifically as it relates to food prices. Everywhere in Europe, prices had risen and real wages fallen. 
In rapid succession, revolutions broke out in what is now Belgium, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Poland, and Ireland. There were no fewer than four revolutions in France in 1789 alone. From 1790 to 1815, rates of price increases were greater than in any previous price revolution. Every European nation and monetary system was caught up in it, including the Americas. From Boston to Buenos Aires, Mexico, Canada, and the Middle East, the Balkans, and Turkey. Artists and authors once again caught the mood, from Goethe, Poe, to Hawthorne, Melville, and Byron. I should note that I'm doing no justice to the more violent intrigues and assassinations and the like which Fisher writes about in majestic prose. The great wave reached its crest and broke with shattering violence during the Napoleonic Wars. In the United States, in 1819, a commercial panic led to a full-scale depression, but charitable organizations once again prevented starvation associated with the increase in pauperism and unemployment. Other than a burst of inflation in the U.S. during the Civil War, the rest of the 19th century is called out as the Victorian equilibrium, bringing comparative stability in Europe. The turn of the next century marked the beginning of the fourth wave, the price revolution of the 20th century. Wages chase prices, wrote Clyde Vardsworth. Prices chase wages, and both chase their past history. Here's Fisher writing about the city of London. In 1897, nearly all of its inhabitants had lived their entire lives in an era of stability and comparative peace. No general war had marred the peace of Europe since 1915, except the brief unpleasantness in the Crimea. Every 10 or 20 years, the British economy had drifted into a commercial depression, but prosperity had rapidly returned. Real wages had risen for nearly a century, and prices had remained remarkably stable for years. Inflation was regarded as a distant horror that was visited upon less deserving nations as divine punishment for economic sins. The new inflation continued at a moderate pace of 1-2% to until the start of the First World War. Monetary factors would play a role in the price revolution of the 20th century, but the Great Wave grew primarily from excess demand, generated by accelerating growth of the world's population, by rising living standards, limits on the supply of resources, all within an increasingly global economy. There was, at the same time, a public health revolution, and a revolution in material expectations among people of every social class. The outbreak of war in 1914 shattered both the peace and economic stability of Europe. Over the next five years, wholesale prices doubled in the U.S., trebled in Britain, and quadrupled in Germany. In Italy, prices were up sixfold. Germany's inability to feed itself became a fundamental cause of its defeat. Further, the war was paid for by huge loans and taxes on middle and lower classes. The rich were protected from income and profits taxes. In Russia, the economy collapsed totally under the strain of the war. The distribution of food was so disrupted by 1917 that the army was forced to live off the land even within its own country. Major shortages developed in the cities. Prices of food soared. On March 8, 1917, when hungry mobs attacked bakeries throughout the capital and were fired on by police, the Russian Revolution began. Like the French Revolution in 1789, the immediate cause was a combination of high prices and extreme scarcity which also occurred in many parts of Europe during World War I. Not long after the war ended, those trend lines broke and economic depression spread throughout the world. Germany's new and shaky Weimar Republic inherited a vast burden of debt and the crushing weight of heavy war reparations to France. 
When an attempt at tax reform failed, public credit was exhausted. The German government felt compelled to pay its debts by printing money. The result was one of the most extreme hyperinflations in history. An American dollar was worth 40 marks in July 1920, 493 marks in July 1922, 4 million marks in the summer of 23, and 4.2 trillion on November 15, 1923. Hyperinflation also occurred in Austria, Russia, Poland, and Hungary. Though as short-lived as they were severe, the experience of hyperinflation shattered an entire generation of Germans. Confidence in open democratic institutions was weakened fatally in Central Europe. In Britain and the U.S., the gold standard was replaced with protectionism. FDR's New Deal was a direct attempt at diminishing material inequalities and an indirect attempt at preventing a trip down the dark road to fascism taken by Germany and Italy. The economics of European fascism and Japanese militarism, as well as their ideologies, drove their leaders to embark upon ever more desperate adventures. In 1937, Japan went to war against China, and two years later, Germany invaded Poland. The beginning of the Second World War at last brought the Great Depression to an end. Prices, wages, employment, and production surged through the world. In the U.S., President Roosevelt assembled a team of exceptionally able managers who made the American economy into the decisive weapon of the war. Rationing and price controls worked well enough. A black market developed for scarcer goods, but most Americans were willing to accept a more highly regulated economy as part of the war effort. In Nazi Germany, prices were kept very stable. This was done in part by requiring citizens and corporations to freeze their liquid assets in compulsory savings accounts, which in turn were confiscated by the state. This plundering of private assets effectively reduced demand and diminished inflation, but also contributed to the total destruction of the German economy. Fascist Italy cheerfully resorted to the printing press and suffered severely from an inflation that continued at a rapid rate until 1948. In the U.S., price controls were removed in 1945, followed by double-digit inflation and then a short recession. But inflationary pressures mounted again during the summer of 1950 when a communist regime in North Korea suddenly attacked its southern neighbor, and yet another major war began. And once again, inflationary forces surged throughout the world. President Truman brought back price controls with high success. But this wave was notable, at least in the U.S., for what was called inflationary psychology, a second cousin once removed from the inflation expectations that emerged in the last wave. It would make its way to Western Europe, too. There was a growing mood of fatalism about price movements. The attitude encouraged pessimism about the possibility of restraining inflation and caused people to see other remedies. This added fuel to the inflationary fire. The institutional machinery grew more complex and neoclassical economists became lost. American business discovered a technique called competitive inflation, by which two rival sellers of the same commodity could increase profits by degrading their product, advertising relentlessly, changing the packaging, and raising the unit price. The textbook example came from the market for candy bars, where bar sizes started to change and packaging was increased relative to the size of the bar as prices were raised in five-cent increments each time. This complexity, designed to fool the consumer into thinking they were getting more for the higher price or to be too confusing to allow the purchase to be subjected to analysis, was repeated in automobiles, airline tickets, and services. Sellers increasingly operated an information advantage over buyers. In these ways, the great inflation of the 20th century differed from the other price revolutions. 
and its velocity was greater than those that came before as well. Annual rates of inflation in the U.S. had already accelerated before the Vietnam War. This turned into a global movement. No nation was exempt. The world was more productive than ever before, but still could not keep up with demand, thanks to a rapid increase of world population and the growth of aggregate demand. In the U.S., whenever capacity utilization rose above 80%, the rate of inflation accelerated. When it fell below that level, inflation subsided. A policy recession was created in late 1968, but inflation was stubbornly persistent, a dynamic Paul Samuelson called stagflation. Neoclassical economists were again stumped, but as you know by now, this was not new, even if the name was. Stagflation happened in the later stages of every price revolution from the 13th century to the 20th. Then came a series of unexpected events that happened in prior price waves, but still could not be predicted. The Yom Kippur War, an embargo on oil, and OPEC raising the benchmark price of oil. The double-digit inflation that followed was the highest peacetime price surge in U.S. history. In regards to taxes, inflationary bracket creep enters the vernacular for the first time. President Carter and Fed Chairman Volcker declared inflation enemy number one, and Volcker proceeded to raise rates until the economy turned sharply downward. Observes Fisher, Major instabilities developed in commodity markets. The United States and other nations had responded to the rising cost of energy by increasing domestic production of oil, shifting to other fuels, and by reducing demand for energy. These measures succeeded beyond expectations. Their effect was to solve one problem by creating another, the energy glut of the 1980s. Suddenly, the world found itself awash in oil. Energy prices fell sharply, and petroleum-producing regions fell into deep depressions. Similar reversals also occurred in other sectors of the world economy, notably in agriculture. After a quick but deep recession, prices of raw materials start to climb again. In 1987, oil doubled. Strong upward trends appeared in copper, nickel, aluminum, wool, and rubber. A large part of this increase was due to hoarding in fear of higher prices ahead. Economic forecasters predicted further price increases, and that inflationary psychology rapidly strengthened through the world. Fear of inflation began to be more disruptive than inflation itself. The expectation of rising prices caused prices to rise higher. It is the author's opinion that the policy of using high interest rates to control high inflation increased inequality, discouraged investment, diminished productivity, reduced demand, and drove up unemployment. Ironically, it also promoted inflation in housing, in part because home construction was inflated by builders' capital costs, which increased with the rate of interest. As it had in prior waves, real wages fell, and returns to capital rose more rapidly than the price level. And now we approach the book's publication date in 1996, but far from the end of the story. Let's pause to allow the author to set the tone. America in the late 20th century was becoming two nations. In New York City, the contrast between wealth and poverty had always been great. Now it became increasingly visible and more extreme than ever before. Studies by the author and his students found that after 1975, measures of wealth inequality reached their highest levels in four centuries of American history. Inequality of income also climbed steeply from 1968 to 1996. On a bitter cold Saturday evening in the winter of 1986, the author remembers seeing crowds of opulent shoppers strolling on Madison Avenue, while homeless men and women in filthy rags lay silently on steam grates 
next to battered shopping carts that held all their worldly goods. In 1989, Manhattan Boutique sold mink coats for four-year-old children, while homeless children slept in the streets and subways. Banks were unstable, savings and loans were worse, deregulation ended in more than 500 bankruptcies and a huge taxpayer bailout, which further deepened already record federal deficits. Instabilities developed in international trade, and trade imbalances contributed to monetary disorders. The Reagan administration drove down the dollar relative to other currencies in hopes of making American products more competitive. The dollar lost more than half its value against several major currencies. Fisher takes the story to the book's publishing date, and I'm quoting where appropriate for effect that will become obvious. The events of the late 20th century increasingly resembled price revolutions in the past. Once again, world systems were in crisis. Rates of population growth were plummeting throughout the world. By 1996, some nations approached zero growth. Others still had negative growth. Inflation forecasts were repeatedly revised downward in the 1990s. So strong was the decline of prices that several leading economists asserted that the age of inflation was at an end. For years, central bankers had functioned as heroic inflation fighters. Reflexive inflation fighting was also institutionalized in economic systems, more so than inflation itself. The results were the same as before. In 1996, inflation was declining, but not dead. Anti-inflationary policies added to the miseries that inflation itself had caused falling real wages, rising inequality, diminished economic growth, and increasing instability in political and social systems. All that was happening in the spring of 1996 when this book went to press. The end of the story has not been written. It could end in many different ways. So fragile were the major trends that contingencies of various kinds threatened to disrupt them. A major war in the Middle East or Eastern Europe or some trouble spot could reignite inflation. A collapse of overvalued security markets could cause panic, depression, and deep deflation. In a time of crisis, when so many possibilities were hanging in the narrow balance, much depended on the wisdom of our choices. Wise choices in turn required intelligent leaders and informed electorates, but intelligence and wisdom, and even the information that we needed most, were not much in evidence in national capitals throughout the world. As the great wave of the 20th century approached its climax, the condition of many nations called to mind a Melville novel, or perhaps a Macefield poem. The ship of state raced onward, through high seas and heavy weather. All sails were set, and her helm was lashed to the course that she had long been steering. On the quarterdeck, several parties of myopic navigators squinted dimly at the dark clouds behind them. Somewhere below was their amiable captain, who wanted mainly to be loved by his sullen crew. The first-class passengers amused themselves in their opulent cabins, knowing little of the suffering in steerage, and nothing of the dangers that surrounded them. On deck amidships, a lone bookish traveler turned his collar against the wind, leaned precariously across the lee rail, and tried to read the signs in the sky. End quote. The book doesn't end there. Fisher does for us what we'd want to do if we were taking notes. Bringing it all together, finding the rhythm of history, and see what it says, if anything, about the future. The central finding may be summarized in a sentence, says Fisher. 
we found evidence of four price revolutions since the 12th century, four very long ways of rising prices punctuated by long periods of comparative price equilibrium. Some were as short as 80 years, others as long as 180 years. They differed in duration, velocity, magnitude, and momentum, yet shared several properties. All started in much the same way. The first stage was one of silent beginnings and slow advances. Prices rose slowly in a period of prolonged prosperity. Magnitudes of increase remained within a range of previous fluctuations. At first, the long wave appeared to be merely another short-run event. Only later did it emerge as a new secular tendency. The pattern of price relatives was especially revealing. Food and fuel led the upward movement. Manufactured goods and services lagged behind. These patterns indicated that the prime mover was excess aggregate demand generated by an acceleration of population growth, or by rising living standards, or both. The second stage was very different. It began when price broke through the boundaries of the previous equilibrium. This tended to happen when other events intervened, commonly wars of ambition that arose from the hubris of the preceding period. These events sent prices surging up and down again in a pattern that was both a symptom and a cause of instability. The consequences included political disorder, social disruption, and a growing mood of cultural anxiety. The third stage began when people discovered the fact of price inflation as a long-term trend. They responded to this discovery by making choices that drove prices higher still. Governments and individuals expanded the supply of money and increased the velocity of its circulation. In each successive wave, price inflation became more elaborately institutionalized. The fourth stage began when this new institutionalized inflation took hold. Prices went higher and became unstable. Price shocks were felt in commodities. The money supply was alternately expanded and contracted. Financial markets became unstable. Government spending grew faster than revenue. Other imbalances were even more dangerous. Wages, which at first leapt up with prices, now lagged behind. Returns to labor declined while returns to land and capital increased. The rich grew richer. People of middling estates lost ground. Inequalities of wealth and income increased. A novel tendency at the end of the 20th century wave is a powerful inflation of asset values, something this podcast talked about in its first episode on inflation. My own summary of the first three waves is simpler. It gives me a guide for where we are in the fourth wave. Demand-side shocks got prices rolling straight into supply-side shocks, which were then exacerbated by unpredictable events like pandemics, climate change, rents rising ahead of general prices, and unending wars, which together created unsustainable inequality. Stagflation signaled the end, which presented itself in economic upheaval and eventual collapse. For his part, Fisher concludes, these material events had cultural consequences. In literature and the arts, the penultimate stage of every price revolution was an era of dark visions and restless dreams. This was a time of lost faith in institutions. It was also a period of desperate search for spiritual values. Sex and cults, often very angry and irrational, multiplied rapidly. Intellectuals turned furiously against their environing societies. Young people, uncertain of both the future and the past, gave way to alienation and cultural enemy. Finally, the great wave crested and broke with shattering force in a cultural crisis that included demographic contraction, economic collapse, political revolution, 
international war and social violence. <laughs>